Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text. Chapter 16, A Very Frosty Christmas. So Snape was offering to help him. He was definitely offering to help him. If you ask that once more, said Harry, I'm going to stick this sprout. I'm only checking, said Ron. They were standing alone at the borough's kitchen sink, peeling a mountain. I'm Casper Turkile. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So my friend Casper's favorite movie, You've Got Mail, was set on the Upper West Side of the island of Manhattan, which is also where our Manhattan-based group is. I love that movie so much. And yes, indeed, our local Manhattan group, Harry Potter and Hot Coffee, uh, which is run by Craig Budzinski, meets in Manhattan. So if you're living in the island formerly known as New Amsterdam, you should join them, as everyone should, if they're interested in meeting a local group. You can find their details and everyone else's at harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups. For our story this week, we're going to hear from the wonderful author, Terry Tempest Williams, who you sat down with earlier, Vanessa. Yes, I love Terry. She's a minor goddess. So we were very lucky to be joined by her today, and she is going to tell a story through our theme of erosion. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by Terry Tempest Williams, who is an incredible and award winning writer and environmentalist and is out there saving the world. She is also a writer in residence at Harvard Divinity School, where she lives at what we lovingly call God's Motel. Um, and spends the rest of the year living in Castle Valley, Utah. She's also a friend and mentor, and I love her very much. Terry, thank you so much for being here today. You're going to tell us a story on the theme of erosion. What story do you have for us? I have a story within a story of erosion, and it's rooted in place, the place where my husband, Brooke, and I live in Castle Valley, Utah. If you close your eyes, imagine that you are standing in the center of a collapsed salt dome with red rocks all around you. To the south are the LaSalle Mountains, and they rise 12,000 feet above sea level. To the north, we have the Colorado River running red. To the east, the rising sun uh, that comes up over Adobe Mesa and the priest and nuns and Castleton Tower. To the west, we have Porcupine Rim. And in the center of the valley is Round Mountain. And one day, we got a call from a friend of ours who lives in New York. And he said, I would love to bring my friend to come visit you. We're going to be traveling through Arches National Park and Canyonlands. And we said, our doors are wide open. They came. We had a beautiful dinner. We sat and watched the sunset, you know, in the shadow and glory of Castleton Tower. 
Um, they went to sleep. We thought we'd had a wonderful time. We got up in the morning, and his friend was standing in front of the door with her suitcase, ready to go. And we said, where are you going? And she said, I can't stay here. It's too big. It's too quiet. It's too foreign. I have to go home, home in Manhattan. We opened the door. She walked out with her friend. And just as she was getting in to leave, she looked at me and said, Terry, aren't you afraid you're going to be forgotten? What I wanted to say was, I hope so. I think living in an erosional landscape, it is an erosion of the ego, an erosion of the self. We remember what we're a part of and where we come from. I think what I am afraid of is forgetting this, that we are one species among many. Here's the story within the story. Not long ago, a group of seismologists from the University of Utah with the help of some climbers put essentially a stethoscope on the surface of Castleton Tower, a 400-foot Wingate sandstone monolith that rises above our valley. What they found was that Castleton Tower has a pulse that goes all the way down to the core of the earth. It registers waves, it registers wind, and it sways as skyscrapers, only this is a skyscraper of sandstone. So I think about erosion, erosion of self, erosion of belief, and at this moment in time in our country, erosion of democracy. And I really believe that we are both eroding and evolving at once. And can we register our own heartbeat with the heartbeat of all the life that surrounds us so that if we are in the midst of an eroding democracy, it will be the open space of democracy that brings us back into the heart of what is essential. You know, Casper recently said that one of the definitions of awe is simultaneously feeling big and small. And it sounds to me like living in a landscape like that keeps you in that sort of right-sizedness of constantly being in conversation with, like, what am I to a mountain? But also, right, like, it has the same heartbeat as I do. And um, keeping you humble in the face of those other species. I think it's exactly that uh, sense of proportion. You know, you can take your, your work seriously, but not yourself seriously. In the American West, as a Westerner, we take weather deeply seriously, especially in this era of climate change. So there are those moments of awe and wonder where you're standing on the edge of a mesa and you can literally see the curvature of the earth. And you realize, again, we're one species among many, and it is deeply humbling. You know, with any good story, we are left with questions, whether it's Harry Potter or a simple story about erosion. And for me, the question about the woman who had to leave, who said, aren't you afraid you'll be forgotten? The question for me is, not will we be forgotten, but what will we forget? And to me, what we are forgetting is that the earth is so beautiful. This world is so beautiful in spite of the violence, in spite of the shadows, in spite of, of the cruelties around us. That's what I don't want to forget. It's not that I'm afraid of being forgotten. I hope I am because I want to be dirt, sand, ash. That is my body, the body of the earth. That is a sacrament laid bare. And I think the more that I live in a world with Trump as someone with power, the more resistant I become to any idea of legacy, that craving being remembered, it's like a Shakespearean tragedy to want to be remembered. And I, I feel like more and more I've been letting go 
of that idea. But what I hadn't thought about embracing is the actual desire to be forgotten, which is different than the desire to be invisible, Mm -hmm. right? It's actually a hope that the earth will survive long enough that we will only be dust. It's that is something I want to cultivate in myself more is the actual desire to be forgotten. And to blend, you know, to blend in, to be consumed by another, um, even the beauty of the earth. You know, I was with my niece, Sage, she's three years old, and we were talking about camouflage and of hiding because we were playing hide and go seek. And I said, you know, look at the bluebird. And she said, the bluebird blends in with sky. You know, the yellow warbler blends in with sun. Um, The snowy owl blends in with snow. I mean, she did this entire litany of what birds blend in. And I thought, what do I blend in with? You know, I want to blend in with the surroundings that hold me. And to me, maybe that's the ultimate um, relationship to erosion, that it brings us not only to our knees in an act and state of humility, but to our essence. Terry, thank you so, so much for making the time. Everybody go buy Terry's book, Erosion, Terry Tempest Williams, because it is the best thing that I have read in 2019. And I am 100% convinced that I would think that even if I didn't know and love you. It feels like even more of a privilege to know you reading your book. It is a radical act of genius, this book. So thank you so much for writing it and then for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being at the core of my community here in Cambridge. You are my teacher. Casper, were you bewitched by Terry and her brilliance and her voice? I'm enchanted. This is going to be such an interesting theme conversation. I would have never thought of the theme of erosion to look at a chapter through. So this is going to be great. I agree. Okay, now bewitch us with your 30-second recap. 30 seconds on the clock. I'm ready. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay, so everyone's arrived back uh, at the bar, by, we- by which I mean the Weasley clan and Harry and Fleur. Um, Hermione apparently just had to like disappear and Harry didn't get to share the news that he overheard Draco and um, and Snape, which is weird. Um, okay, so then there's lots of conversation. Remus comes to dinner, but Tonks isn't there. Drama, drama. Then Scrimger arrives and is like, oh, I brought Percy to apologize, kind of, but not really because I just want to go for a walk with Harry, which is super wrong. And they go for a walk and Harry's like, uh-huh, I'm Dumbledore's man through and through, biatch. And then that's it. I did not remember all of that. <laughs> I totally forgot about when Harry calls Scrimjob Biatch. You know, it's it's really um, super textual, but I thought at this point our brains are so aligned that really it's there in the pages. Oh, I thought maybe it was British edition versus American <laughs> edition. All right. What have you got? 30 seconds on the clock. Here we go. Three, two, one. Fred and George are mocking Ron for dating Lavender and for not being 17 and being able to do magic. And then everybody is so rude to Mrs. Weasley, who is just trying to enjoy herself for five minutes on Christmas Eve. And Lupin is like really bedraggled and tells stories to Harry about what it's like to be a werewolf and how Greyback and how he was bit as a child and it's really sad and Tonks isn't coming. And um, Percy shows up and he's just being used by Scrimjaw. And um, the twins finally appreciate Mrs. Weasley for her housekeeping. Yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah. (laughs) Where do you think we should start on this theme of erosion, Casper? So the thing that really stood out for me throughout this whole reading was the centrality of Lupin, um, Mm -hmm. because he's really been pretty absent from from the book so far. And yet here we get a real insight into what life is like for him. We've heard that he has been tasked to kind of go underground, uh, literally, he says, you know, I've been living underground with other werewolves who are nearly salivating at the prospect of Voldemort returning because they have been promised that they'll be able to essentially have fresh meat to to bite anyone that they want with the longer view that they will replace wizards and witches and, and be the superior tribe. And obviously that's the very opposite of what Lupin wants. So already that's trying and I, I can feel his just energy being sapped. I mean, he looks disheveled, like he's been living underground, so he's obviously uncomfortable. He's not getting his vitamin D. But also his his relationships are eroding, right? He literally can't spend time. Like, he can't send letters to Harry. He can't spend time with the Order. 
And there's a little bitterness that creeps into his description of the task that Dumbledore has given him, right? He's like, well, I was kind of ready picked for this job because I'm a werewolf. And all of that is really wrapped up in the fact that he discovers how and why he became a werewolf. He describes having forgiven whoever bit him because he was like, you know, I know what it's like. You can't control yourself, right? In those moments, you, you're you not yourself. And, and I forgive that person. But he learns that Fenrir positions himself close to victims on a full moon so that he can do maximum damage. Like there's an intentionality about it. So I feel like his story about himself and his, really his his generosity and his willingness to forgive and his just capacity for goodness is being eroded. And it's it's painful to see. Oh, yeah. I mean, his, you know, many scene within a scene between he and Harry. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what I do think is sort of potentially building back up about it is how beautiful it is that Lupin feels like he can confide in Harry. Yeah. I had forgotten this intimacy and vulnerability, which just repositions their relationship to me of them really becoming friends sort of in this moment. And I just found that beautiful. And I, I don't know if it's Lupin's just, you know, he's just so lonely that he's desperate to talk to anybody, mm. but he seems like a deeply composed person. And so it does seem to be that he's choosing to really share with Harry. And I think that it has to in part be because Harry understands what it's like to be utilized mm. by Dumbledore mm. for something that happened to you as a child that you would not wish had happened to you, right? So I had never seen how close that parallel was between Lupin and Harry until this reading. This is really interesting, Vanessa, because I read that exchange between Lupin and Harry as like the the relationship eroding a little bit. Because there are little moments where he says things like, you're determined to hate him, Harry, when Harry's kind of telling him about Snape. Or, Or later he says, you know, when Harry reveals that he has this textbook by the Half-Blood Prince, and Lupin's first thought is that that's a title Harry's giving himself. So he says things like, is this a title you're thinking of adopting? I should have thought being the chosen one would be enough. And I read that as having a little bit of acid in it, like something a little bit. But now your description actually feels much more realistic, which is like they're actually sharing an experience of like, wow, you know, both of us are put in this situation way beyond what we've chosen. And it's very lonely. And, you know, the reason I agree with myself and not with you <laughs> is because there is such a beautiful moment where Lupin uses some really hateful language about himself. Mm. Lupin says that the other werewolves want to revenge themselves on normal people. And Harry's immediate response is, but you are normal. Mm. And I just think that that is so unaffected mm. and so loving It had never occurred to Harry that Lupin being a werewolf and having a condition Mm. makes him not normal. And Lupin, you know, bursts out laughing. Sometimes you remind me a lot of James, right? Like, Mm. I saw that moment is so loving. You know, fans talk a lot about Lupin being a werewolf as a metaphor for having AIDS. And, you know, in the context of when these books were written— where to have somebody say, you are normal, right? Like you just have a condition. Right. It's just such an act of love. And it shouldn't be. This should just be the way that anybody with any condition is seen. But I feel like within the cultural context of this moment, it is so beautiful. And I think I'm really moved by it in Harry because he hasn't been like given sensitivity training on, <laughs> you know, how to talk to people with werewolf disorder. And it's just this instinctive love for Lupin. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And there's this lovely echo, right? Like he literally uses the same language to describe it. Like James used to say, like, your furry little friend. Harry picks up on some of that language unknowingly. So there's this kind of stream of friendship which surrounds Lupin generationally, which is so touching. And it's interesting that this is the reason why Lupin says, you know, I am not going to make a call on Snape either way. You know, I, like he really refuses to say whether he likes him or he dislikes him. And all he focuses on is his gratitude to Snape for making the Wolfsbane potion perfectly and reliably while they were in Hogwarts together. And it, it it's interesting that it's his illness which defines his relationship. And I think what's so lovely about this moment with Harry is that even though they share this intense uh, kind of 
pattern of having an experience as children which shapes their life forever. It, in some ways, it still doesn't actually feel that that's the bond that they share. I, like th- th- there's something true about their friendship which goes beyond circumstance. Which I thought exactly what you're pointing to. There's, there's this integrity to their relationship which it just shines through in this conversation. Yeah. Yes. I love the line that Lupin is walking on Snape where he's like, it doesn't matter if I like or dislike him. I respect how caring he was for Mm. me. And that matters. It doesn't matter if he's sort of likable. Mm -hmm. He's a good man because he he took care of me in this way. Well, and that's I think that the lesson he's trying to teach Harry is because, of course, Harry comes to this conversation with a deep suspicion and, and really an accusation against Snape. And what Lupin is saying, like, listen, you have got it wrong. Like, it's not about whether you like him or whether you don't like him. It's it's what he does. And I and I guess even then Harry can say, yeah, but I literally saw him say to Draco that I made an unbreakable vow. But there's something remarkably balanced in Lupin being this ultimate character of unbalance, right? Of this Jekyll and Hyde kind of swinging back and forth, that he's able to maintain that kind of constancy. I think that's what I admire about him so much that he's, you know, can you imagine going underground, right? Or, Or joining a group of something that you stand against so deeply to try and shift the conversation. And he says that it's not working, right? He's like, my balanced, reasonable approach has zero impact, and yet I'm still there trying. I'm sure at personal danger. Yeah, and I love what you said about how he's in this Jekyll and Hyde curse and yet maintains his balance. I just think that that is such a beautiful point. The metaphor that really struck me about Lupin in this moment and the fact that he realizes that Greyback not only that he's living with the person who assaulted him, but realizing that he was assaulted and it was not mm. an accident. I was really just reminded of cases that you hear on college campuses where mm. um, somebody will be sexually assaulted and will still have to live in the same dorm as the person who assaulted them. Or the way that like people still have to go back to work after they've been sexually harassed by their bosses, right? Mm. The ways that being a victim of violence, there isn't just the incident, but there are a hundred other incidents that just compound the trauma again and again and again, and how that erodes at you, right? That there's a big, you know, chip that happens when the act of violence happens that sort of can weaken you, but the erosion happens over time of the indignity of, you know, being Anita Hill, who was sexually harassed by Clarence Thomas, and then having to go and make jokes with him the next day, and then having to go and talk to Congress about Mm -hmm. it, and then having Congress question you, right? Like, it's an endless erosion once one thing happens to you. You know, we would like to think that what happens is one terrible thing happens to you, and then there's justice, But we know that we live in a world that Lupin is inhabiting now where we know it's actually the opposite, where he was bit and that is degrading enough. And then he has to ask Snape to take care of him. And then he has to go underground and live with the man who assaulted him, right? It it is. It just erodes and erodes you until the point where he ends up, you know, running out on his wife and kid at one point. Right. Well, and also that erosion, maybe this is what's so beautiful about this metaphor is that It's the small chips, right, of erosion that actually allow that big chunk to fall down. To fall out. Right. So it's a culture of those little jokes and that inappropriate engagement. And right, like all of those little things allow for those big things to happen. We see Lupin have to survive exactly this like daily little chipping away, right? Like that water just breaking down that rock that and I think I think that's what made me just so sad to see him in this chapter is that he feels close to breaking. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Well, so can I point to a slightly, slightly lighter version of the same thing? (laughs) Yes. I just saw Molly. Oh, my gosh. People are chipping away at her constantly in this chapter. And it drove me wild. And I do think erosion is such an apt metaphor because Mm. we saw Fleur not being treated with respect by the family over the summer. I'm not giving Fleur a pass for how she treats Molly. But I do think it's possible that, you know, if we think of like a beach eroding, that this has been a wave that's been going back and (laughs) forth between the two of them where they're— respect and kindness and assumptions of good intentions in one another has been eroded over time. Right. Where, of course, Fleur is going to talk badly about Tonks because Molly clearly prefers Tonks, you know, and their trust has been sort of waned away. But the way that everybody is making fun of her for liking this Christmas radio performance, the fact that Fleur is just talking over her and then mocking it, And then the real betrayal to me is when Molly says, I understand why Arthur falls asleep, right? He's tired. But when Molly says to him, remember we dance at this at our wedding? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And then apologizes to Harry for having to endure this. I can't even tell you how much it enraged me. This is a woman who lives acts of sacrifice and service. She erodes herself constantly taking care of other people and for other people to pile on i just couldn't take it yeah i 100 percent agree with everything you say and the question that was in my mind is like why are we all in the same room like molly should just take arthur listen to that show or go to the tv or, or the radio whatever it is like have that moment together which is what she wants and let everyone else do something else and i think sometimes There can be that move, especially by parents, which is like, I want this experience to be like this. And you all have to live in this experience with me when the kids are like, no. (laughs) Um, You know, I I wonder to what extent this anxious desire for everyone to experience this thing together from Molly comes from the fact that Percy is missing. There's clearly a seat that's empty around the, you know what I mean? Yes. Is this an avoidance technique, right? Like we see what it means for Molly when Percy does come back, of course, not sincerely, it turns out, but there's, there's something missing, which dials up the anxiety, I think in this whole situation, which, which makes it all the more, more challenging. I totally hear you. You know, I dated someone for several years where we would go up for Christmas and the parents would just insist that we would all do a puzzle together. (laughs) And I hate puzzles. And it felt like an infringement, like on my liberty and freedom that I was forced to do a puzzle. I was like, can't I just sit in the same room and read a book? And they were like, nope, we do puzzles. (laughs) And I was like, ugh. Which is why I think I felt so betrayed by Arthur. Mm. Either say to Molly, hey, let the kids go into the other room and sit there and really be with her. Or respect it. I'm just trying to think if I were to overhear Peter say something like that. Totally. When I have been cooking and rearranging bedding. Absolutely. I would be 
devastated. So let's let's take it out of just the interpersonal and kind of go to the systemic level because we learned that Arthur is basically kind of coming home for the first time on Christmas Eve, right? He has been working such long hours, which I think has eroded their family time. And I think certainly has eroded Molly and Arthur's relationship so that this moment becomes all the more meaningful for Molly. She's looking for a connection with Arthur because he's just been absent, right? And and because we're basically fighting a war. And so again, that dial just gets amped up on what everyone needs from one another. And I think it's important to give that context because this is not, as much as it is a personal failing, it's also a systemic failing. People are being put in situations where they can't be their most generous and attentive and co-creative selves. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And we see that, right? Like Arthur is literally falling asleep. Right. Like probably all Arthur wants in the world is to go to bed. Oh my God. And he is physically sitting there with his body, you know, and right. trying to be nice to Molly. So I want to point elsewhere in the text with Molly, which is her relationship with Fleur. Because as you said, this has been going on for months now, right? And that mutual erosion of, of trust and goodwill, I think is completely... What I noticed reading it this time, I was like, is Fleur trying to annoy Molly? I mean, she is, if she's oblivious, she is really oblivious. But this felt more than that. This felt intentional of like, as soon as the program is done, I'm going to make fun of this singer and this in this show that you clearly really enjoyed. I mean, what was your read on that? Oh, yeah. I think it's intentional. <laughs> she she would have to be an idiot right. for it to not be intentional. And I just, like, don't think Fleur is an idiot. I do think Fleur is being cruel here. Hmm. I also think that if I were Fleur, I would probably be quite resentful of Molly and the rest of the Weasleys at this point. Mm-hmm. For, I think, again— to hearken back to the story I just told, like, I think being an in-law in a house is hard. And they have all made it very clear, like, I don't know why you're rushing into this. Mm-hmm. I think you should postpone your wedding. Oh, Tonks is coming around. Mm-hmm. I am not condoning Fleur being cruel to Molly. I think at the end of the day, she's a guest in Molly's house. Right. And mockery is just debasing, like, confront Molly rather than erode slowly and, you know, degrade her. But I can understand a world in which Fleur is deeply resentful of Molly and of the Weasleys. Well, and this is really, it's Bill's failing. I mean, he's the one who loves both women and is the bridge between them. and, And we never really see him kind of embrace that role, certainly not so far. And so, yeah, if we're going to think about strategies to stop erosion, right? Like you do, you do have to build something new or put something in between the water and the dune or whatever it is. And Bill is kind of conspicuous in his absence, I think. Oh, that's such a good point. Which I think speaks to Fred and George sort of do, not that, mm. but they are shoring up these erosions, Mm. right, of, you know, if we think of Molly as, like, a boulder and we think of Percy leaving as, like, a hammer to Mm. that boulder and all the missed opportunities to sort of shore it up and, you know, put whatever the natural equivalent of hot glue is (laughs) in the crack, the twins, through their gifts, try, Mm. right? It was very sweet. Right. It's so sweet that they gave her this like beautiful hat and beautiful necklace. It was real tokens of appreciation. We know that they can be a little stingy. And so they seem to have like really <laughs> splurged on her in, in, a, in a beautiful way. A couple of things bothered me about it, though. One, mm. what bothered me was how much it meant to her. Mm. It just made me sad. Do, do the kids never give her presents? Mm. Like, because I don't think she cares about the monetary value of them. I think she's just deeply touched that the twins have given her anything. Oh, there's, I mean, there's a couple things that what really struck me was actually that I think it was the fact that it was, well, not just the monetary value, but something really beautiful. You know, we mm-hmm. know that the borough is a, it's, it's a working class home. Money is not flush. And that's not to say, you know, that, that there aren't many things which are wonderful and, and even rare items, right? Like the clock that she's always holding. But I think that idea of something new and something that you buy just because it's beautiful and it's a gift and it doesn't have to have a, a use value and all of that. I think that is rare in Molly's life. And she would certainly never buy it for herself. Yeah, I think it's very natural for those kind of objects then to become symbols of what it actually communicates underneath, which is that 
like we appreciate you for for you and I think they're unartful in saying it <laughs> with the with the socks comment. But I think it's true. You never realize how much you depended and relied on your parents until you move out, right? I remember the way I thought about my sisters also completely changed when I moved out because suddenly there's there's a clarity on the relationship and a, and a context and a distance that makes you or made me appreciate my family in a whole new way. You know, this also reveals we never really hear about Mrs. Weasley's social life, like what her friends are like. Like, does she have a group of other, like a mom group or, you know, there's there's not chit-chat at the school gates at Hogwarts, right? So like, I wonder what her relational life looks like. And if it's the order, then it's mixed up with work and danger and, I mean, just so much complexity. And I, I wonder if that's maybe what she's pulling everyone in the house together for in this moment of watching the show or listening to this radio show. It's like, oh, I, I want to feel like I'm with people that I love and who love me because actually most of the time everyone's working or in school and I don't get to feel you close to me so much. Well, I, I do. I think she spends a lot of yeah. her time alone in the house. Yeah. Even when everybody is gone, there's a lot of work to keep up a house no doubt, and to be growing their own food and you know, we see in this chapter that Harry didn't think to get Creature a present. Mm, and mm. I feel like there's some sort of sad metaphor in there of, like, no one except Fred and George, who appreciate her labor, mm. thought of giving Molly one. I just She's like the house elf of this house. Yes, they don't have a house elf. So who's doing all that work? Yeah. yeah. Like, it's just all Molly. And... Also, I think part of the reason I find their reaction to this radio show so offensive is that it's a a lot of what I hear about women reading romance novels, Mm, right? Like mm -hmm. a woman will work and work and double shift and triple shift of like working her job, working her side job, then coming home and taking care of her family. And then she'll find a moment to sit down and read a romance novel, which has a trashy cover. And she gets Mm -hmm. mocked for reading something silly. And it's just like, oh, my God. like. Let them have it. It's so interesting, Vanessa. I think you're completely right. The way that we marginalize that uh, delight in romance fiction, especially. It's noticeable that the text quotes a lot of the songs, right? Like we hear, oh, my poor heart, where has it gone? It's left me for a spell. Now you've torn it quite apart. I'll thank you to give back my heart, right? Like there's there's a lot that we're getting from these songs. And maybe one reading would it would be like, oh, ha, 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 humor, right? Like, look at this funny wordplay. Look at these puns. But I think maybe there's something deeper going on in these songs, which is there's something alive in these songs, right? Like it's full of not not just romance, but like risk and sex. Like there's something exciting about it, right? Oh, yeah. And we know Molly loves a little sexy flirting from her Lockhart stuff. Exactly. She's like locked in this house. We hear Ron complain that he never has new clothes. Well, guess who definitely never has new clothes? For sure. And she like gets to feel a little sexy and imagine herself into these songs. Well, there's there's something that I'm seeing that's happening across all these relationships. There's there's an essentializing that goes on, right? Like Molly is mother and housekeeper. And like as soon as she steps into being romantic or like, you know, sexual or wanting wanting something more than just that role, she's pushed down, right? Lupin is werewolf spy and anything else, no, right? We haven't talked about this yet, but Scrimger's look at Harry is like, you are a tool for me. And otherwise, you know, Harry says, you don't care if I live or die. All you care about is positive press, right? We're just seeing that over and over again, that when we essentialize people, not only is it an indignity to them, but we actually lose sense of what's possible and how we could be in relationship together. And and I think that's super focused along gender lines, as you say. And it's happening throughout this chapter. Yeah. I remember for my mom's 50th birthday, for some reason, everybody was going to be out of town. And my mom loved musical theater. And I was like, I'm going to take my mom to hmm. a musical for her 50th birthday. So she was turning 50. So I was 19. And I did not think of myself as someone who liked musicals. I thought of them as something silly and, (laughs) you know, and like sort of beneath me. I was like, I like serious theater. 
But I, you know, I was like, I'm going to take my mom to this show. And we saw the Scarlet Pimpernel. And it was the day I fell in love with musicals. <laughs> By sitting there with my mom, right? And, like, I'm not trying to, like, pat myself on the back. I definitely went in totally snobbish, right? right? right. And being like, I'm patronizing my mom. I'm sitting here listening to this, like, dumb radio program <laughs> because it, like, means a lot to her. Right. And I was blown away. And now, uh. as everybody knows, musical theater is, like, the way way that I process the world. And so I just think that even forcing ourselves into those Uh. situations, I was given such a gift just by, like, loving my mom enough to patronize her. (laughs) Oh, I love that. That, like, actually there's an invitation to take seriously what someone else loves. And to take it back to erosion, I think one of the reasons that we're frightened to do that is because we're worried it's going to change us, that that it's going to erode a vision of ourselves that we have become comfortable with and that we feel good about because it's scary to change, right? Like erosion on the one hand, we want to stop it because it, it endangers beautiful habitats or, or landscapes. And also the history of the world is one of constant change and erosion, right? And so when we try to hold on to things about ourselves and we don't allow ourselves to risk and to change and to grow, that's also unnatural in a way and and I love that invitation to kind of lean into lean into the love of someone else you know that they have for something because it might it might shape us so Vanessa the final place I want us to look as we think about this theme of erosion is actually the role that Harry plays in kind of preventing erosion when he has this one-on-one with the Minister of Magic Scrimgeour right he arrives and like extracts Harry from the kitchen and and they go for this walk and it starts with chit chat and Harry's like what's going on and what I saw in the passage was a constant like barrage, right? Like waves at a cliff from the minister saying, you know, like, tell me about what it is to be the chosen one. And like, that must have all sorts of feelings for you. And Harry's like, sorry, but that's between us. And then he kind of takes a stand and he's like, you're making Stan Shunpike a scapegoat, just like you want me to be a mascot. I don't want to be used. And, and I was really struck by Harry interrupting that constantly time and time again. Yeah. I I really saw Scrimjaw as a predator, Mm. like taking one child away from everybody else in order to like exert his power over that child. It seemed deeply, deeply sinister to Mm. me. And I think it also spoke to the power of having even just one adult who you can trust, that having his strong relationship with Dumbledore and then also knowing that the Weasley family is right there and would do anything for him gave Harry the confidence to not be eroded in this moment and to stand firm and to keep sort of putting up those dams to be like, nope, you're not going to get in this way or that way or that way. I also think that there's probably a missed opportunity here, you know, one that I'm sort of fine sacrificing. But I think that Harry could have said, like, I will partner with you if, in exchange for my partnership, you'll free these people and stop arresting innocent people, like, would partnering with me give you enough good press that you could release these other people? It's so interesting that you bring up that opportunity of collaboration, because I think the moment that dies is when Harry realizes that Umbridge still works for the ministry. I mean, he literally shows his scars, right, on his hand that says, I must not tell lies. I felt that as a real turning point for Harry when he was like, you're still employing this woman who was a terror, right, for me personally, for the whole school. And it, and if that's who you're still okay with, then we can't play ball. I, I get that. So I totally get why that's the thing that turns Harry. I also just understand a little bit enough of how bureaucracy works. Of course. The umbrage came back to the ministry right as there was this change in leadership within the prime minister's office. And so it's entirely possible that Scrimshaw just doesn't know how right. abusive umbrage is. And we only see umbrage with all that power in book seven after Scrimshaw has been killed. I think, again, and I'm not blaming Harry. He has just heard the name of his abuser being used as a way to say, I know how to manipulate you because of your abuser. What I'm trying to do is say, I know that there are moments in my life where Mm -hmm. my defenses come up. And rather than calmly seeing an opportunity for partnership, I'm like, no way. You said this thing. Right. 
So I'm just trying to learn from, you know, Harry's completely valid choices to try to inspire myself to make different ones. Yeah. And it's definitely compounded in a way that makes Harry feel like I don't think he has that capacity. I mean, he, he mentions Barty Crouch, right? Like, there's so much history now between Harry and the ministry that when Scrimger says, like, you're Dumbledore's man through and through, which in its own way is kind of demeaning of Harry, right? It, it takes away Harry's agency. Like, at, at this point, I think Harry is, is so fed up that he's just like, yeah, yeah, I'm glad we got that straight. Totally. And it's smart. Like, Harry is not being led anywhere that he doesn't want to go. He He's like, let me see where Scrimger's trying to take me. And then when it's clear, he's like, these are the lines I'm drawing and goodbye. Totally. I also think that this speaks to the erosion of all of our faith in political systems, oh, so right? Much, so much. Because Harry is like, uh, yeah, Barty Crouch worked for you, right? Like he is listing all of the political figures who've betrayed him in right. the wizarding world. And he's like, why should I trust you? Why would you be any different? Yeah. And I think that we're obviously all in that moment right now, especially where our faith in our political systems have completely Mm. eroded, right? Like, how often can we be Charlie Brown Mm. going to kick the ball? We just are looking at people holding the ball now and being like, I'm not even going to try to kick it. Mm. So Vanessa, this week we're continuing with sacred imagination, our Ignatian practice where we imagine ourselves into a passage and try to either think of ourselves as one of the characters in it and see what we notice, whether we hear or smell or or just sense anything unusual in what happens, or that we can kind of see ourselves as a fly on the wall. And this is always to try and help us understand more deeply what's going on, of course, in the passage, but also hopefully to help us see our world anew as well. So this comes about two thirds of the way through the chapter. The Weasleys are all sitting around the kitchen table and then this happens. Arthur, said Mrs. Weasley suddenly. She had risen from her chair. Her hand was pressed over her heart and she was staring out of the kitchen window. Arthur, it's Percy. What? Mr. Weasley looked around. Everybody looked quickly at the window. Ginny stood up for a better view. There, sure enough, was Percy Weasley, striding across the snowy yard, his horn-rimmed glasses glinting in the sunlight. He was not, however, alone. Arthur, he's, he's with the minister. And sure enough, the man Harry had seen in the Daily Prophet was following along in Percy's wake, limping slightly his mane of greying hair and his black cloak flecked with snow. Before any of them could say anything, before Mr. and Mrs. Weasley could do more than exchange stunned looks, the back door opened and there stood Percy. There was a moment's painful silence. Then Percy said rather stiffly, Merry Christmas, Mother. Oh, Percy, said Mrs. Weasley, and she threw herself into his arms. Rufus Scrimgeour paused in the doorway, leaning on his walking stick and smiling as he observed this affecting scene. "'You must forgive our intrusion,' he said when Mrs. Weasley looked around at him, beaming and wiping her eyes. "'Percy and I were in the vicinity, working, you know, and uh, he couldn't resist dropping in and seeing you all.' But Percy showed no sign of wanting to greet any of the rest of the family. He stood, poker-faced and awkward-looking, and stared over everybody else's heads, Mr. Weasley, Fred and George were all observing him, stony-faced. So, Vanessa, who who did you find yourself kind of seeing the scene through and, and what did you notice? I was Percy mm. and I just felt so ashamed mm. that I agreed to this out of a sense of ambition and the opportunity to spend time with the Minister of Magic And then I, like, see how excited my mom is to see me. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm, like, angry because I'm defensive. Like, I'm not speaking to you for a reason. Mm. But also beneath that, just so ashamed that it, like, means so much to her that I'm here Mm. when I'm here for completely selfish reasons. I hate myself as Percy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just that hug that's described. I I could feel it nearly just between Mrs. Weasley and Percy this time. 
I, I found myself being Arthur because, of course, mm. Arthur works in the same building as Percy. And in that moment of stunned exchanged looks between Mr. and Mrs. Weasley, I mean, I can imagine if I was Arthur, I'd have seen him around the building and there's been no change, right? Like in how we interact, we're ignoring each other. And so I, I'm bewildered by what this means. And then when I see it's not real, like it's not it's not Percy's intention. He's not asking for forgiveness. He's not, right? There's no reconciliation. And I see Molly, my wife's reaction. I mean, it is just like a heartbreak all over again. And so I think when Arthur and, and the twins are described as stony faced, there's something, I'm, I'm actually fuming. I'm so angry because he's, you know, Percy is making Molly go through this all over again on Christmas with everyone here. Ugh. And again, for his own ambition, right? Like, it's just validating every worst thought that yes. they have had about Percy that, like, you only care about your career. You only care about your ambition. None of us actually matter to you. It's so upsetting and heartbreaking. The the context of, like, Christmas is a time for family traditionally. So there's just an extra salt in the wound, I think, that this is happening at Christmas. Which, yeah, does help me if I'm Percy. I also feel degraded, right? Yeah. Like, you are using me and to some extent making me hurt my family. Like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. And, like, I do want an opportunity to kiss up to you, but you are taking advantage of my weakness, ambition, Mm. to make me do something that I don't want to do. I, like, don't want to be here. And so I think that I also sort of, if I'm Percy, I also feel dirty. Like, I feel ashamed, but I also am like, you are degrading me. Yeah, and he's so silent. I mean, the only words we hear him say are Merry Christmas, Mother. And of course, one presumes that there's a conversation while Harry and Scrimger are outside. But I can imagine that would be a lot of Molly saying how much she misses him and how much she loves him. and and Offering him food. Right, exactly. I, I can imagine there's not a lot of words that Percy says. But it's interesting to think how this will influence, because he sees his mother's reaction now. Do you think that will influence his return later? Yeah, and he sees that all systems of power are willing to take advantage of him. Mm. I think, of course, this impacts him in all sorts of ways. And, you know, I don't think we know all the ways it does. But, no, I think that this is a a significant incident for Percy. I think he's a victim here also. He's a complicit victim, but he's a victim here also. Yeah. I I love doing a close reading like this because you just see – I always end up seeing visually more of the scene rather than just hearing it narratively. And I think I just love Mrs. Weasley even more for her optimism, right? Mm. Like, she loves Percy so much she, like, doesn't even notice the Minister of Magic has entered her house. She's not like, oh, uh, trying to serve him in an awkward way. She is only focused on Percy. She's not seeing the contextual potential clues that this is not a genuine offering because she's just so delighted to see him. Yeah. The final thing that struck me just as Arthur looking at Rufus this time was um, we, we hear Rufus being described as he's he's leaning on his walking stick, right? He's limping. There's something in him, which we learn he's that he's battle scarred later in his conversation with Harry. It's such a contrast to what we've seen with Fudge. I mean, this is a warrior. And I think Percy looks all the more kind of like an office boy next to this man. I think I would look at my son with an extra level of like, what are you doing? Like, this is not, This is not where you belong. This is not who you are. I don't know. The whole thing is just heartbreaking. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you, Casper. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. 
They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Today's voicemails from Polini Marie Diaz. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. My name is Polini. I'm from Brazil, and I have been living in Dublin, Ireland for a long time. I just want to comment on the episode Home from Book 5, Chapter 35. My Irish boyfriend and I decided to end up our seven years relationship. We started living together shortly after we met and soon he became my home. And even living here for a few years before I met him, I never felt totally at home in Dublin. And he gave me a sense of belonging that I never felt before. And he was my new family. It's been really hard to adjust to a new life without him. We're still friends, but that sense of belonging is gone. And a sense of belonging is something that we all desire. And I think Harry lost that after serious death. I want to offer a blessing to everyone who is alone and away from home, is struggling to face a new situation in their lives. I know it's hard to find the courage to keep it going, but we can always start again no matter what. I want to thank you all for this brilliant podcast. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was the first podcast that I ever listened to. And I love Harry Potter. I love you guys. I love the show. So it's a win-win. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks, Paulini. And I'm I'm so glad that, you know, the podcast has been able to be with you during a time of such challenging transition. I think any time, just like we were just talking about with Percy kind of disappearing from the family, when there's someone who is part of our constellation and part of what makes us feel at home and that relationship ends or or at least there's a, a real interruption like we see with Percy it's destabilizing and it, and it makes us question like where do we belong and are we in the right place and I hope that as the months pass and and that pain softens that you'll find a, a new set of relationships that help you feel at home wherever you wherever you are so thank you for listening to the show and thank you for your voicemail Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from this chapter, and I'd like to ask who you are giving a blessing to this week. I mean, this will surprise no one. I am blessing Molly. Yeah, I think that I just see her as very isolated in this sort of rural area and putting all of this hope into this time that I have all of my kids or most of my kids under one roof and... This thing with Percy happens, and I'm mocked by my new daughter-in-law, and I just feel for her. I'm putting so much hope on family reunion time and instead having it be painful in all sorts of ways. And I know that that is something that I can relate to, and I'm sure that a lot of people can relate to, where you love your family and you so cherish time being with them, but it can also just be really hard and painful. What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless? Well, I want to send a mini blessing to the girl who works in the shop near the village where the borough is. And the twins are like showing off their magic tricks. And she's like, it's just like real magic. <laughs> I just love that. 
But my real blessing is uh, I want to bless Lupin. You know, we we will see throughout the books how he pushes people away because he doesn't want to risk them getting hurt by him. And I think there's such a deep hole in his sense of enoughness. Like I, he just thinks that he's fundamentally broken and therefore unworthy of of love. And we, oh, obviously we're going to see that really play out in his relationship with Tonks. And I just, for anyone who feels like they're not enough or they're unworthy of basic human affection and love, a reminder that in all our flawedness that we are whole and entirely worthy of love. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the show. You can leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail by emailing harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Our border fundraiser for Aesis is still ongoing. Please go and support us by going to harrypottersacredtext.com. Don't be a Dursley, and thank you to everybody who's already participated. We hope to see you all at one of our upcoming live shows. We'll be in Toronto on December 9th and St. Louis on December 19th. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 17, A Sluggish Memory Through the Theme of Attention. This episode is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Chelsea Ursin. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of Nightville Presents. Thanks for this week's voicemail to Paulini Mari-Diaz, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and of course, Stephanie Purcell. Thank you for listening, everyone. We'll see you soon. I really hope that we have a, an Istanbul <gasps> chapter so one day we can say, did you know that Istanbul was, was Constantinople? Constantinople? Where is that from? That's from the song. I don't know that song. <laughs>